0: From the FJC in Washington, D.C., I'm Mark Sherman, and this is Off Paper. What does it mean to engage in a neuroscientific, culturally specific, trauma-informed approach to community supervision of justice-involved people? In other words, If the primary purpose of evidence-based community supervision is to reduce recidivism through behavior change, can knowledge about neuroscience, cultural competence, and trauma-informed care assist a parole, probation, or pretrial services officer's supervision practice in a way that will improve outcomes? It so happens that Multnomah County, Oregon's Department of Community Justice is at this very moment engaged in an initiative intended to answer these questions and we're fortunate to be joined by three guests to talk about Multnomah County's Smart Supervision Project. Kate Desmond is Community Justice Manager at the Multnomah County Department of Community Justice where she manages the department's Gresham office and leads the Smart Supervision Project team. Dr. Alicia moreland Capuya is an assistant professor of public psychiatry at Oregon Health and Science University, where she directs the Aval Gordley Center for Healing and serves as subject matter expert for the Smart Supervision Project Team. And Keith Murphy is a probation administrator in Multnomah County and a lead probation and parole officer on the Smart Supervision Project Team. So, everybody, listen up, because we're about to get smart. Kate Desmond, Alicia moreland Capuya, and Keith Murphy, welcome to Off Paper.
1: Thank you. It's great it's to be th-
2: here. Yeah, great to be here.
3: Yeah, thank you, Mark.
0: Uh, wonderful to have you here. You know, so, Kate, uh, I'd like to begin with you um, as the Smart Supervision Project Team Leader. And... I'm hoping you could tell us first just about the Multnomah County Department of Community Justice, sort of what it is and what you all do generally, and then tell us how the Smart Supervision Project came about, the project's goals, and its basic structure.
1: Sure. So first of all, uh, Multnomah County uh, Probation and Parole, the Department of Community Justice, we are somewhat um, different from some Uh, jurisdictions because our department has both adult and juvenile probation supervision. So, um, the juvenile, we have the juvenile division as well as the adult division. Uh, We have approximately 125 adult probation and parole officers, 30 juvenile court counselors, um, and on the adult side, we serve um, both probation, as well as post-prison supervision. So when people are placed on probation through the courts, uh, they are supervised by a probation officer with us, or when they're released from prison, they um, will be on parole or post-prison supervision with a probation officer. And we don't And we mix those two. So we don't have some probation officers that just have post-prison cases and others that just have probation. Uh, You just have to pay attention to uh, who the legal authority is. And on the juvenile side, uh, as I said, we have about 30 juvenile court counselors, and those are all probation. Uh, Those youth are all on probation um, from the court. And then if they were sent to um, juvenile prison, uh, it's with our uh, Oregon Youth Authority, and then they would be on parole with them. Uh, we're funded um, through state and general funds. Um, we are the largest um, population-wise county in Oregon, um, but we have the smallest footprint, so we're the smallest, um, but we have the most people. Um, and uh, we are governed by our county commissioners. I think, um, yeah, I think that's kind of described Multnomah County.
0: Okay. So um, that's really helpful just to sort of give us a, a, an idea of um, of both the department and sort of where you're located uh, and what you all do. So now, uh, Kate, if you wouldn't mind, just give us a sense of, uh, of the project, um, how it came about, the project goals and the structure.
1: Sure. Um, what we... How our department is, we have a lot of specialty units. So if we have, um, what I mean by that is like we have the domestic violence unit, we have sex offender unit, we have the gang unit, mental health unit, and generics. Um, um, We have drug courts. There's a wide variety. And really it was our our director and and our assistant director that were getting together and talking about. Are we doing business the most effective and the most efficient way? And is there a better way that we can be doing, uh, supervision with our justice involved individuals, uh, than the way we're doing it? Um, you know, we kind of, in Multnomah County anyways, um, the police have the same specialty units that we do, robbery, um, you know, domestic violence, and as well as the district attorney's office. Um, but there is a lot of research out there about uh, working with 15- to 25-year-olds and their brain development. And, of course, we're going to get a lot more into that uh, later in the podcast. But we started thinking, should we be focusing on that and should we be working with, um, you know, a certain age group as opposed to uh, charge-based uh, in? looking at through their charge so uh, we did write the grant uh, we got it from the um, BJA and we said that we want when uh, a probation officer meets with a, a, a um, an individual we use the EPICS model uh, effective practices in community supervision and uh, it's a cognitive based um, interventions that we do with with people when they come into our office. So we wanted to enhance that. We think it's a good way to, to interact with folks and help them change their behavior. But we wanted to enhance it, and so we focused on three things. Brain development, trauma-informed care, and then cultural responsivity. And through that, um, we, we thought, okay, how, how are we going to do that? And again, we were just so fortunate that we have Dr. Alicia moreland uh at Oregon Health Science University. And uh, we tapped into her. And she was really impressed with the um, grant as well and wanted to come on board. So uh, we also, when we picked uh, the ages of 15 to 25, um, how we chose that is because that's um, our highest recidivism rate uh, what is that age group, so we thought if we're going to do this, let's, let's focus on an age group and um, focus on brain development, trauma-informed care, and cultural responsivity.
0: That's extremely helpful. Let let me stop you there because, um, uh, and Dr. Moreland, I do want to come to you in in just a minute um, to ask you about that relationship between the supervision model and the smart supervision projects, neuroscience, cultural competence, and trauma-informed components. But Kate, just sticking with you for another second, um, I I, I wanted to emphasize the fact that you all do use the EPICS model. um, And it sounds, I I imagine, though, you were seeing some, Improvement in terms of recidivism reduction, which is the goal of that model, uh, over time. But that uh, you all—it sounds like you all felt like something more needed to be done.
1: Exactly. Um, what is a huge concern of ours is our overrepresentation of people of color in our mm-hmm. system, um, and we really wanted to make an impact with that. And um, also, we—I know so much more now um, and after working with Dr. Moreland, but I thought um, I understood trauma-informed care, but I have a much, much more in-depth understanding of it and how, as as a probation officer and as a juvenile court counselor, how we can be uh, impactful and aware of people's trauma.
0: It makes total sense. And, you know, um, particularly interesting, um, because the federal system, the supervision model that we use called Staff Training Aimed at Reducing Rearrest, or STAR for its acronym, um, is really almost identical to the EPICS model. Uh, and we're in the midst of some very significant implementation of STAR that started several years ago um, and uh, and continues. And so I think this is really what piqued my interest in in this, in in what you all are doing in Multnomah, because, um, you know, this is something that potentially we could be doing in the federal system as well. So, Dr. Moreland Capuia, turning to you, um, talk about the relationship between EPICS and the smart supervision projects, neuroscience, cultural competence, and trauma informed components, because I think this is really where things start to get interesting. Yeah, well,
3: I think I want to just step back just a quick second to give just a little bit more context. I think what we are dealing with in this country, the broader context, is that in the country, folks are recognizing that there, are, there is a huge population of young people who we've decided from a moral perspective that we don't want to just throw away, that we want to invest in and we want to participate in this process of habilitation. So I think that the system in general is recognizing that there was a set of assumptions made about the young people who are involved in, unfortunately, uh, entangled with the criminal justice system, that, there, that the way of doing business sort of in – years past has not resulted in the types of outcomes that I think everyone had hoped for. And so then behind that came, okay, perhaps we should be rethinking how we approach the system in general. And and in order to approach the system, there had, had to be some sort of larger understanding about how systems work and how systems change. So when I, Kate is absolutely right, when I caught wind of the fact that the county was going to engage in this particular process, the first thing I thought about was, wow, this is an an awesome opportunity to impact the system for change. And that's recognizing that a system changes two ways, from the bottom up and from the top down. And so how do you come in and effectively work with a group of individuals who do hard work? It is hard work, uh, but to not just have them think about change from the perspective of how we change the person who's sitting in front of us. So not just how do we change the young person or the emerging adult who's sitting in front of us, but what must we do as individuals who are wanting to facilitate change? What type of change must we do? What type of change must we undergo in order to inspire and continue to perpetuate? Uh, the kind of change that we seek. So that's the, the basic premise. And then moving down to it, it's the recognition that systems are intimately attached to people and that systems don't change if people don't and that people don't change if there isn't uh, an opportunity to tap into what I call the feeling space. Nothing in history has ever changed without someone feeling something and getting to a place that motivates them or compels them to do something different. So that is the basic frame at which I started the work in engaging with Multnomah County and the JCCs or the, um, and the juvenile court counselors and the adult parole officers. And, and so the model itself, as you've mentioned, you mentioned the staff training and reducing rearrest model, which is similar to the ethics model, effective practices and um, community supervision, that these models, interestingly enough, were designed for change. Right? So I want to stay consistent with this theme to tell a story here. So these models were designed with the very idea in mind that we are going to help or assist or facilitate a population in this change process. But there were a few things that may not have been considered up front. These are purely cognitive behavioral-based models. And I want to underscore the word cognitive. The cognitive piece, it turns out that it is very, very important because it makes An assumption that the individuals who are going to be subject to this particular model of supervision are actually capable or in a space where they can actually access the cognitive aspect of their brain. So this is where it does get interesting where you say, huh, if we really want to get to the change that we seek and we see that these models, yes they're good in theory, but they're not getting us completely and fully to where we want to go, there may be a few steps ahead of the curve or Few steps upstream that we've got to go back to in order to accomplish our goal. So that's where things like understanding the potential threats to cognition and the ability for uh, juvenile, you know, for, for juveniles who are entangled with the law and even emerging adults who are entangled with the law to say maybe there are some things that have happened to them over the span of their lifetime that maybe has contributed to threatening their ability to access cognition. So what are those things? Well, very clear things like racism, which is a form of toxic stress and and definitely the brain is experienced that way. Substance use, early exposure to trauma. And what we're knowing now from studies is that that early exposure to trauma is not just once child is born, but we're talking about mother being pregnant in a chronic stress, toxic stress situation changing the in utero milieu, the environment that the young person is is in and, and already priming that young person for uh, increased risk of trauma, increased risk of uh, behavioral uh, uh challenges and increased risk of also chronic health conditions. We know this now from studies and so the question that becomes how do we effectively within a model take into consideration all of the potential threats to this young person's brain. We're expecting them to come in and to engage with us cognitively and rationally and then when they don't the assumption is made that they are not adhering to supervision or not compliant and maybe that's not the right assumption to to draw that's not the right conclusion to, to draw maybe we need to consider the fact that they did come from trauma they did emerge from situations where poverty or or food scarcity and not knowing where uh, you know the next meal came from or lack of connection and that all of these things if we consider it in the context of a model and we ask parole officers to consider all of these social determinants in a real way that we can effectively change how they engage with young people in the context of supervision. And by changing that frame, we effectively move towards the change that we seek. We want young people who did not get a fair start in some cases to do better because they can do better. And we're not making assumptions about who they are in the moment, but we're asking questions about who they say they are. And we're holding out hope and increasing capacity that they can become the great people that we know they can because the brain can heal and that's what trauma-informed practices are about and healing is completely possible if we employ the right models and so that's where I came in with uh, helping the the team really understand not just in a training model, but also coaching. It's one thing to give information. It's another thing to help people apply it and to kind of oversee that process and to challenge it and to reorganize it and to rethink it and to play with it and, and then to get to a point where you're using it. Um, so I I will stop there, but that that is, in a nutshell, kind of where we find ourselves. And I believe that that's why we've been able to get the success we've, we, you know, we, we've, experience, and, and that's why Kate and Keith are now able to continue on, even though I'm not as present, they're able to continue on with a lot of the work because we've been in it together, right? So it was a lot of, a lot of coaching required and a lot of changing of structures, not just the educating on neuroscience and cultural responsivity and trauma-informed practices and approaches, but demonstrating what that looks like, providing tools and models for how to employ that effectively, sitting in supervision sessions with the parole officers and their clients and giving active feedback, establishing a group supervision model where we're recording sessions and giving active feedback and then going back and saying what did we learn, what more do we want to learn. It is an active, ever-present model um, that is worthy of reevaluation on a regular basis with the ultimate goal being if we want the change, what type of change was, must we do? As a system in order to facilitate the type of change we seek in the folks that we serve. So I'll stop there.
0: It's a beautiful explanation. Thank you so much. You know, uh, and I want to come back to, uh, later on this, the training model that you've been using and, um, and sort of how that has played out, uh, because again, I, I see it building on some of the, um, some of the training approaches that have been used in, um, in helping officers learn how to use core correctional practices, but but sort of, again, layering on top of that this important um, knowledge that, as you say, helps clients access their cognitions uh, or their cognitive facility, um, which, which I think is a great way of, of thinking about this and perhaps can address some of the frustrations that officers sometimes experience, you know, yeah when they're working with clients who, who can't access that uh, because Correct. of what they've been through in their lives. So I do want to come back to that. I want to bring Keith Murphy into the discussion um, for the last couple minutes of this segment. Um, and Keith, you know, I, I'm really interested in um, just kind of getting a summary from you at this point. And again, we'll come back to it as we move deeper into the to the program. Sort of what you're seeing from from the officer perspective in terms of outcomes among clients. You guys have been at this now. For a couple of years, maybe a little bit longer, so you've had enough opportunity to to see uh, some of the results or outcomes and just from your your perspective, what are some of the things that that um, that you're seeing that that uh, you think are worth talking about?
2: Uh, one of the key things that I'm seeing is that uh, you know as dr uh, Moreland pointed out is you know being able to uh, have better access. Uh, with the clients, particularly because uh, given how we go about our approach with uh, working with them now, they're showing up more routinely. So which offers us more opportunity to, uh, you know, uh, make a meaningful difference uh, in their lives. Uh, That's, I would say that's most critical. Uh, Again, and uh, our officers are very invigorated at this time. Uh, They like this model. It's uh, got a very humanistic approach to it that uh, makes them uh, quite comfortable uh, because, you know, at, to an extent you can actually be vulnerable and you know, uh, lend yourself as an example to helping the clients move forward. Uh, oftentimes in the industry we kind of take a uh, standoffish approach and just uh, focus on the client and their deficits and uh, – not become too close to them. Um, with this model, um, we um, we are just we are active participants and uh, uh, just just more amicable in working with the clientele. And uh, most importantly, what I've noticed is we are not sanctioning as often, and uh, that's very important. So. With the idea of not sanctioning as often means we are not seeing uh, recidivism as much. So, uh, and I would think that is par for the course of us uh, developing meaningful relationships with the clientele.
0: We're talking with Kate Desmond and Keith Murphy of Multnomah County, Oregon's Department of Community Justice and Dr. Alicia moreland Kapuya of Oregon Health and Science University about an innovative community supervision project they're engaged in that incorporates knowledge about neuroscience, cultural competence, and trauma-informed care. We'll be back after a short break. This is Off Paper. Hi, everybody. I'm Mark Sherman, the host of Off Paper, and I want to tell you about an exciting initiative underway at the FJC that will help you deepen your professional development. A few years ago, FJC Director Judge Jeremy Fogel articulated a strategic vision for Judiciary Branch education that emphasizes curriculum-based planning. In other words, the educational resources the FJC produces should fit into a coherent structure designed to meet your most critical learning needs makes sense, right? Our Education Division has been working on identifying those needs across the judiciary, and I'm happy to report that our Advisory Committee on Probation and Pretrial Services Education and over 400 officers from across the country have helped create a set of competencies for experienced U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services officers. There are 10 of them, and I think you're going to like them a lot. Confidence in decision-making, critical analysis, everyday leadership, investigative objectivity, proactive planning, resilience, role awareness, supervision for success, team orientation, and workload management. The sole purpose of the competencies is to help you truly discover your excellence as a professional after you've graduated from the Federal Probation and Pretrial Academy and over the course of your career. Now, Ten competencies can be a lot, so you definitely don't want to try to master them all at once, and you don't need to. So here's what I recommend First, take some time to review the competencies, their associated behaviors, and intended outcomes. You can download them from the FJC's Probation and Pretrial Services Education page at fjc.dcn. Then, think about the job you're doing now and which competencies are most applicable. Once you've done that, ask yourself which of those competencies would make the most sense for you to focus on now and which ones can wait also if you're particularly ambitious and are looking to move into a specialist or management position at some point you might want to think about which competencies will help you do that so you can build them into your plan when that's all done take a look at the FJC's probation and pretrial services education page to find programming and resources that'll help you master the competencies you've chosen to focus on. You might also want to check out training options and resources available from the Academy or the probation and pretrial services office at the AO, the Sentencing Commission, the NIC, NAPSA, FPPOA, APPA, or the National Drug Court Institute, just to name a few. Now, Go out there and discover your excellence, okay? We're back with Kate Desmond, Keith Murphy, and Dr. Alicia Morland Capuia. Okay, so Dr. Moreland, so I really want to take some time uh, now to talk with you about a couple of things. Uh, first, you know, if you could briefly describe your role in the project um, and sort of build upon some of the some of the items and some of the points you made in our first segment. Um, and then from your perspective as a psychiatrist with expertise in behavioral health issues that are prevalent among justice involved populations, I think it would be really helpful um, to hear more regarding your opinion of the supervision model in terms of what it does well, where it falls short, to the extent there's more to add. You, you talked about that again in the first segment, um, you know, and how concepts operationalized by the SMART Supervision Project are designed to enhance the supervision model.
3: Absolutely. Thank you for the question, Mark. I I was asked to participate uh, in the SMART grant initially as a, a subject matter expert. So, again, it was the recognition that Multnomah County, at that time when I joined, they had been five years into adopting the EPICS model, which stands for Effective Practices and Community Supervision. This EPICS model was created at the University of Cincinnati and had been a demonstrated model uh, back at the University of Cincinnati in reducing recidivism among the population that Keith and Kate have talked about, which is 15 to 25-year-olds. And so when the county adopted it, uh, again, being very innovative and forward-thinking, they adopted it with the expectation that it, too, would do what it had done in uh, at the University of Cincinnati, which was to reduce recidivism amongst and within this particular population. What the county had demonstrated at that time is that the ethics model actually, been, after five years of being into it, is that it actually did a great job of shifting the culture amongst parole officers and JCCs, and so there were a lot of good things that happened in terms of sort of making a cultural shift to a, a framework that included things like, you know, check-ins and review and, uh, and then, you know, homework, you know an intervention and homework. So it, it standardized a process and at least got everyone thinking about uh, a course that they could take and a framework that they could use uh, in terms of supervision. And frameworks are always good, but the beautiful thing about frameworks is that they, they give you – a nice blueprint, uh, once you learn the framework, it also should lend itself to some flexibility, creativity, and innovation because you've got to work with who's in front of you. So I think the county recognized at that particular time, five years in, that it was doing something but it wasn't quite hitting the target. And so as, as everyone's sort of understanding around brain development in this particular population, around trauma and what trauma does to brain development, how it interferes with with one's ability to kind of be uh, rational thinkers at times, how it interferes with the ability to sort of exercise good judgment at times. There's a number of things that trauma does to the brain and the body. And, and as the understanding of that became greater amongst a particular population within, within the criminal justice system, they said, okay, maybe we need to think more about how we thoughtfully integrate this knowledge into the work that we want to do. So when I was called to come in, they said, okay, well, we see that you do the work. I'm actually a double board certified addiction psychiatrist. So I do general adult psychiatry, but I also do um, substance use treatment and manage um, and treat substance use disorders. And so I understand the impact that all of these things do have on the brain, the body, systems, and family, society. And so they asked me to come in and to bring that perspective um, into everything. So my first bout with, with the, the grant, it actually started with Multnomah County's policies and practices. So they gave me all of their policies, and they said, can you look at these particular policies and these practices, and can you make suggestions for changes based on a trauma-informed lens, based on a cultural responsive lens, based on a neuroscientific lens. And so that was my first order of business, the first four months of engaging, is looking at all of the policies and adjusting the policies. And then once the policies were adjusted on paper, then it became, now can we start the process of, training and, and thinking about all the specific topics. And the first three trainings that were core, was uh, the first training was on trauma and well, actually it was on brain development. So the parole officers got a full graduate level study on embryology and how the brain forms from the point of conception all the way up until about the age of 26. And because it was important to have that framework to see how tenuous, how precious and how, how easily uh, the, the brain development process can be interrupted or or disrupted by by things in the environment. Uh, And then the second critical training was on cultural responsivity and learning about how individuals identify and how the society identifies and how the mismatch between those things can cause a lot of friction and tension and, and understanding developmental phases like identity formation and how when that's not fully formed because of multiple things, that that can get in the way of one's ability to sort of, reconcile their, their role within the world and then the third important training was around um, trauma-informed practices and it was really focused on understanding the connection between fear which is a natural phenomenon and this idea that we were all born with a, with a natural normal proclivity to seek safety first that's, that's all of us no matter who you are and that fear and fear acquisition and learning how to respond to threat is natural until it's not So, then the question becomes, well, what happens if everything feels like a threat? What happens when that response that's meant to help keep us safe never turns off? What happens when I stay in a chronic state of seeking safety? How does that change the way I see the world? How does that change the way I interact with the world? And so, understanding that, making the connection of that fear to trauma, the impact of that on the brain, and then behaviorally how that's manifest, and to say, can you see? how a young person coming into your system might not be able, not, not forever, but at this time and under these current conditions, if we don't change the approach, how they may not be able to engage effectively in this model if we do not, first of all, create safety. So that was the, 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 the base. And, and we developed the trainings and then very specific practices around, again, uh, looking at, coaching models and what that looks like, live coaching as well as video coaching and active feedback in a group supervision model that helped to reinforce these ideas within other trainings around cultural responsivity, trainings around um, vicarious trauma, understanding fear in depth. Um, there were a number of mindfulness as a practice in all the literature that it entails that supports the idea that it is a trauma-informed practice as it heals the brain. All of those things were given. And then we're able to sort of discuss it. So then to your, lastly, to your second question about sort of, I wouldn't say that the model was insufficient in any way. I would say that the model is great at base foundationally. And I think just like as we have to sort of look at older buildings and foundations, the goal was to reinforce the foundation. It was how do we reinforce this model so that it is optimally effective because we do know just from a psychiatric sort of literature and clinical practice that CBT is a very effective model when it's employed appropriately. The goal is create safety, help people get to a place where they're not bottom brain survival mode living uh, so that they can get to a place where they can actively get to that top part of their brain, which is the cortex, which is what the cognitive behavioral model mandates. Uh, so that's essentially... Where, we, where, we, where we've been and where we, we're going and, uh, and, and, and what is understood. And, I'm, you know, as Dr. Maya Angelou says, when you know better, you do better. She says when you, when you get to give and when you learn, teach. And that is really the, the basic sort of essence of this is that when, when we know better, we can certainly do better. And then once we learn it, we can teach it, and once we get it, we can then give it.
0: So it sounds to me, Dr. Moreland, that you are basically, and I've heard you use this, I'm cheating, I, I've heard you use this term before, uh, that we are uh, through this uh, process of training and coaching um, uh, creating a, a a cadre of mini clinicians uh, uh, which i I think is fascinating and really just does build so beautifully on the the training uh, that officers get when they are first taught how to use epics and on the federal side, how they're taught to use stars. So uh, it, it's just a very interesting approach that I have been wondering out, wondering about for a long time. And so Kate Desmond, uh, the concepts that um, Dr. Moreland-Kapui has described here um, and, and this approach, I, I mean, they, they really aren't uh, typically part of the educational backgrounds of most parole, probation, or in the federal system, pretrial services officers. Um, the work is already pretty challenging, and EPICS is a sophisticated supervision model. Um, you know, now that you're adding knowledge about neuroscience, et cetera, on top of that— um, I'm I'm really curious to know from your vantage point as a manager, you know, what the smart supervision project training looks like, both f- uh, from sort of the officer perspective, but really, um, you know, for managers, what's your role uh, and what have you learned? Uh,
1: a great question, Mark. Uh, I will try to share. Um, I think... Well, first of all, I started, I've been with the department for many, many years. <laughs> and uh, I knew it was important to get a team together uh, that wanted to be there. So the team is four probation and parole officers and one juvenile court counselor, and then myself, and of course, uh, Dr. Moreland. So that helped tremendously that I had people that wanted a change, that were uh, thirsty for new information and to be able to not only help uh, a young person make better, t- um, that we we're going to help facilitate change. Uh, they also, exactly what Dr. Borland talked about, wanted to be part of a systems change, and they knew if we did a good job, then we can uh, you know, move it on to other parts of our department. So the training, um, I had I had people eager and willing and wanting to learn. Uh, the other way that we did the training was um, it was a lecture style, um, and uh, Dr. Moreland, uh, as you can just tell, li- listening to her today, I mean she's um, engaging and she's very very knowledgeable and she loves. She loves the brain. <laughs> she loves, um, uh, I mean, she's just a great teacher. And so we uh, there was always a lot of energy in the room, and uh, it was, we could give her practical uh, examples of, of challenging clients that we had and how would it fit into, you know, how would the information she's giving us um, fit into it. I, I guess I would, Mark, I'll just give you one quick example um, when Dr. Moreland taught us about the effects of trauma on the brain uh, and how it really um, has uh, an impact, when people come to our office and they're um, high or they're um, under the influence of something, we don't expect them uh, to be able to engage in a um, in conversations with us and learn an ethics model or something, you know, cognitive intervention. We don't expect that because they're loaded. I didn't realize that um, people coming in with the traumas that they have, that they're not able to um, participate in cognitive intervention uh, if they've not dealt with their trauma. So, again, Dr. Moreland would give us the... You know the classroom uh information but then we were able to you know get real examples and uh it was just always very interactive and people really wanted to learn that was the first i don't know i think eight nine months and then um when it then got super exciting is when well as part of the grant sorry the probation officers and the juvenile court counselor have to submit a videotape uh, on a weekly basis and um, and then um, it's um, evaluated and, uh, and to see how they're doing and are they following the model and, you know, what, what we could do differently. Well, with those videotapes, uh, then we reviewed them with Dr. Moreland uh, as a team. So the whole team uh, got to um, participate in this and... And as Keith mentioned, be vulnerable. And again, this is why when we did this, you know, we took it slow because uh, it takes a lot of trust. I mean, I, I didn't have any um, brand new POs that were doing this or juvenile court counselor. I people who had, uh, for the most part, had been um, officers for over ten years. Um, we had one officer that was new, newer, um, but for the most part, it was you know people who have. Um, had their career in community corrections and so that you know to put yourself on the line and and be vulnerable and and have you, you know critiqued uh, again, but it was a nurturing, loving, yeah, I use the L word uh, environment that we created for each other. and again, people really wanted to learn and um, we we saw significant differences in our with our um, population, with the, the folks that we see.
0: So, Keith Murphy, you were one of these people. Um, so I'm very interested to hear your perspective on the training and, you know, how it's changed uh, and, and impacted your thinking about your work as an officer.
2: Wow. It's, a, it's a shifted in many ways, uh, particularly... Uh, I'd like to start out with uh, just certain things that we do differently. Uh, you know, our general perspective is that uh, we um, acknowledge that our clientele uh, is entering our office facilities or meeting with us, uh, having experienced a significant amount of trauma and anxiety. Um, we know that this is sometimes... a uh, been exacerbated because of the historical connections to uh, uh, other social institutions like banks, schools, housing, and or even the criminal justice system itself. So uh, that that's a key component. And you know, with that with that in mind, and I'm always thinking about the first visit when we're meeting with the client, and you know, and and, and, sub- and subsequent visits that. Uh, This client, having experienced this trauma and anxiety, is perhaps looking at at us with a a significant amount of suspicion. And as Kate was pointing out, and uh, Dr. Moreland has uh, uh, addressed, that there's no way for me, again, I'm going to say this word quite a bit, to make a meaningful or substantial difference in regards to their cognitive processes, if I can't help them, relax. And uh, we go back to some of the things that we learned. You know, we're talking about the amygdala in p- particular right here and, you know, its location near the hippocampus. Anyways, the, the, this is uh, the fear center of the brain. Excuse me for saying it. It's just it's things you've learned from, uh, from working with Dr. Moore. <laughs> Anyways, you I have
0: learned well, Paduan. Paduan.
2: I'm, pr- I'm
1: proud of you, Keith. I'm
3: proud of you. I'm smiling real big over here.
2: Uh, you know, it's, it's, I know there has been coming upon me in order to help this individual meet their, you know, their actual goals and expectations that they, they have of themselves and that I even have for them, to uh, help, help them, uh, you know, be, be, uh, be relaxed and feel safe. Um, I, I think that speaks for anybody in any given situation. You know, it's, it's just hard to learn and focus if you feel, uh, you know, anxious, uh, stressed, or just discomfort. So uh, that's our main thing. And, I mean, with that being stated, you know, we've we've, we've done some novel things around our offices uh, in, in terms of the approach of making a culture of safety. Uh, I always like to point out that uh, our offices are not the typical PO office uh, from the past. You know, you walk into an office, you might see a marksman target or something on the wall. Uh, our offices are adorned with uh inspirational posters, plants uh, and and we have little fidget toys, those fidget spinners and they're running around everywhere. you know little things to uh, just try to relax people's minds in. We conduct mindfulness exercises every time that we st- uh, have a visit with the client. You know basically it is to ground them as well as ourselves, so that again, we can kind of you know relax the amygdala get in a place, uh, you know, the place being the prefrontal cortex, the PFC, so that uh, we can actually do some, uh, again, meaningful planning in regards to uh, helping the client move towards uh, making success. Uh, Other little things that we do that are quite different that I've just seen recently, and this is par for the the SMART grant, we have in our office uh, uh, food provisions, diapers, uh, water, I mean, again, uh, it's been pointed out that you know a lot of our clientele they come in uh, rather you know deficient in some aspects, uh, and including sleep, food, and uh, uh, amongst other things, not just the the typical things of such as housing or or something like that. But you know, and we offer we we, again we offer these these items to the clientele, trying to keep you know just trying to get them relaxed again, so that we can do some meaningful planning and uh, designing in regards to. Establishing a pathway for them to uh, meet their goals and expectations in, in terms of supervision, as well as just personal long term. And uh, there's there's much more, but uh, th- those are those are key things that we do. Uh, you know, uh, particularly in terms of uh, establishing a culture of safety, so that we can just so that we can uh, you know make a difference.
0: My guests are Dr. Alicia Morland Capuya of Oregon Health and Science University and Kate Desmond and Keith Murphy of the Multnomah County, Oregon Department of Community Justice. After a break, I'll talk more with Keith, Kate, and Dr. Moreland about the implications of the Smart Supervision Project for the practice of line officers, the outcomes they're observing, and their thoughts about what it all means for the future of supervision and community safety. I'm Mark Sherman, and you're listening to Off Paper.
4: Individuals with histories of trauma, mental health, and substance abuse disorders are among the criminal justice system's most significant challenges. Learning how to help and deal with them correctly requires knowing the science behind the most effective treatments for these individuals. To help judges and probation and pretrial services officers understand the role of science in federal criminal case recommendations and decisions, the FJC is offering a workshop on science-informed decision-making. The program is a collaboration between the FJC, the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior at Massachusetts General Hospital, and the Petrie-Flome Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics at Harvard Law School. Participants in the two-and-a-half-day workshop will learn from some of the leading clinicians and researchers in the country, about effective interventions at key criminal case decision points, including initial appearance, violation, pre-sentence investigation, and sentencing. The program is highly interactive, with district teams working through case studies grounded in actual federal court case scenarios. Each participating team works through the case studies with assistance from workshop faculty and clinical fellows who are experts in forensic psychiatry, psychology and neuroscience. To learn more about this upcoming workshop offering, visit the Probation and Pretrial Services Education page at fjc.dcn.
0: Welcome back. This is Off Paper. So, Dr. Morland Kapuya I, I, I want to ask you, um, about what your observations have been over the course of this project, which, as I said earlier, has, I think, been going on for a little bit longer than two years in terms of what you've seen, I guess, both in terms of, I guess, what I would call process outcomes, but also ultimate outcomes in terms of the behavior change that you have observed among clients in terms of, you know, uh, rates of, of recidivism or of impacts on recidivism I, I think this is an issue that we are grappling with in all criminal justice systems, but particularly those that are now taking advantage of core correctional practices and the risk needs responsivity framework and and all of these evidence based approaches is ultimately the goal is recidivism reduction so i'm i 'm very curious to hear your perspective about that and and i know you 've got to go soon, so wanted to have you talked about that before we, we say so long?
3: Absolutely. Uh, so I think that, that it is sort of multifaceted and I know that Keith and Kate will be able to give even more specific examples of client successes. I think one of the, the most important things for, or sort of from sort of like a process infrastructural standpoint is we have now an opportunity to impact systems for incredible change, meaning the systems that are designed to help and support uh, can heal. So this is one, I think, incredible uh, conclusion that I've, I've, I'm drawing and have drawn from this work, is that systems themselves are in need of healing, and that when we can help systems heal, that they can, those systems who are intimately attached to people can then more readily facilitate the healing that is required and so, so, so readily needed uh, in the particular populations that we seek to serve. So that's one sort of larger uh, kind of unintended, intended consequence of the work. And a lot of that draws from and is inspired from, again, being trauma-informed. It is the recognition that Every single person is a human being. We all want to be connected, understood, loved. And when those things take place, it changes the way we engage systems. It changes the way we engage in life. At the end of the day, we have to make a decision as a society of whether or not we're going to be a society that leaves those who are chronically disadvantaged and chronically um, chronically marginalized if we're going to leave them off to the side if we're going to do the the right human thing which is to support them and to bring them along and to encourage them that no matter w- where they started that there's still capacity for goodness and there's still capacity for greatness and that is the, that that in my mind is the role of these systems is that we're, we're instilling hope where hope may not have been before and so I think there's an opportunity to do that with changing the approach. Uh, The third and final thing is it also gives an opportunity for again greater learning and and it has implications across the system so it's not just about keeping folks um, out of jail it's helping to or out of the prison system it's helping them not get there in the first place. Right, So it is, it, 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 you know, once they're there, I think that there's, there are several approaches. There's intervention, so that's once they're there, what can we do to ensure that they don't come back, right? We don't want them to come back, not in this vein. And then there is what do we do to then keep them, prevent them from coming back? Once they've had some distance from the system, what, what can we do to prevent them from coming back? And I think that there are tools that we can give. I think that when a system assumes that young people who are entangled with a system, who disproportionately uh, and unfortunately have been exposed to trauma, do have a history of, uh, you know, of, of substance use, do have a history of neglect, you know, disproportionately, that if we changed our approach and said, we're going to assume that something happened to these young folks and that there's a set of skills that they just did not have the privilege to get. And so as a system, our job is to ensure that they get these set of skills. And in order to get those set of skills, we have to first, as, as Keith has eloquently stated, is we've got to create safety. Then after we create safety, we have to thoughtfully engage to inspire and encourage, and then we educate uh, and then we continue to also train and coach for that kind of change that we want in young people. What I can tell you is that it's possible we've seen young people go on to get education to get a job to be um, to to work more meaningfully in relationships uh, to be to, to, to there's this process of building self efficacy for the first time seeing themselves as someone who can do something and I'll give this last example there's a difference if I say to a young person because we a lot of the work in trauma-informed sort of processes is understanding the power of narrative and how that narrative drives thinking and shapes behavior, and then that drives actions. And that, yes, that is a CBT-based model, but here's a basic simple thing. If I say to a young person, you are a felon versus saying to a young person, you are a young person who's unfortunately made some mistakes. There's a huge distinction between those two statements. By calling a young person a felon, which is again felon, de- you know, defendant, criminal, these are words that have traditionally been used in our system. It really effectively leaves very little room for a young person or an individual involved in the in the criminal judicial system to see themselves separate, or to see, to, to see themselves anything different from what they've been called. There's very little room for change in there. So in other words, they're like, well, if I'm a felon, that's all I'm gonna be I I can't really work beyond that but if, if I step back and I say you're a person who's made a mistake there's now greater capacity for me to see the possibility for change right because okay I'm I can now see that there's still something good left in me and I'm still as a person I'm not just this one thing but I actually have capacity to do good and yes I recognize that I've done something that was not so awesome but that doesn't mean that I can't be awesome in the future. So it's about, where and, and there's a whole theory behind that. There's That's the whole purpose of like narrative, um, what we call narrative therapy. It is separating the person from what they call the problem instead of having the person be the problem. It says there are some things that have happened, but if we separate the person from the problem, we leave room and capacity for change. But if we make the person the problem, it's very limited opportunities for change. So I think it, there's a there are a number of implications, and the team learned that too, so that's why I would agree with you that there are many clinicians, but I think that there are implications for multiple systems, not just the criminal justice system, but the education system, uh, there's, there are implications for the healthcare system, uh, the, the, the implications are myriad and sundry. What we want is change, and we've got to engage people differently, uh, and we've got to get back to place and humanity at the, at the center of all we do.
0: For sure. Um... Now, Dr. Moreland-Kapuya, I know you've got patients to see this afternoon, uh, and, and so I, I, I know you need to go. I just want to thank you so much for joining us, and I want to ask Kate and Keith just to stay on the line. But, Dr. Moreland, thank you again so much for joining.
3: Thank you kindly, and talk to you soon, Kate and Keith, and thank you, Mark. I appreciate
1: all that you've done. Thanks again. Take care, doc. Dr. Moreland.
0: So, uh, Kate, I, I want to come back to this um issue of uh, outcomes. Um, and, and I'm very interested, and I, I know that our, our many of the practitioners and professionals in our audience would be very interested to know, sort of from your perspective as a parole and probation manager, um, what are some of the results that you're seeing that might indicate or maybe that even do indicate uh, that the Smart Supervision Project and that the approach is moving supervision in the right direction in terms of recidivism reduction? Have you seen uh, any data that gives you a sense of that, or you know, what are what are you observing other than sort of anecdotally? Is there sort of some hard evidence that you can that you can talk about?
1: Uh, um, sure, I. Well, the hard data I don't have yet. Um, we're going to take a look at our recidivism rates compared to others. You know. Um, But we don't have that finished yet. The grant isn't over until uh, June um, 2019. But what I've absolutely seen, and Dr. Moreland uh, really saw it in the videos and in the live sessions that she did with us, is that the probation officers and juvenile court counselors really stopped and slowed down and what i mean is, is is very literal um you know our offices are very busy we have overhead pages we have people nobody comes in our i don't want to say nobody oftentimes <laughs> our justice above individuals you know rely on public transportation or rely on friends to bring them to our offices and they're not there on time and they might not be on this right date um and there's the, just those simple things um, like that, and so then the PO or the juvenile court counselor, uh, you know, is meeting with somebody, and then they know that their next client is already in the lobby, and they really everybody's just kind of it's it's somewhat chaotic, and uh, what we did was really just slow down, and we do that first by the mindfulness, starting an extra you know starting uh the session out in the mindfulness exercise. And Mark, if you thought it was easy to tell POs in the beginning that you're gonna sit in a room <laughs> with a client and close your eyes <laughs> You know, probation officers or pretrial release officers. I mean, they you know, they were looking at we were looking at Dr. Moreland like she, you know, she you know, she didn't know what really? You want us to do that? The reason why so we all took a risk, we did it, and the reason why we keep doing it it's because the justice-involved individuals love it. They help them focus. They um, see that um, they're able to listen a little better. Um, and again, it's not miracle stuff that we're doing here, but it—we're trying again to bring about uh, a safe environment so that we can help with change.
0: So that's a uh, really—it's a really interesting point that you're making. Um, you know, and earlier in the program, Keith, you described you know what what I would characterize as, as a few intermediate outcomes that that are very positive. Uh, and Kate, you just referred to them here. So, and I think it's worth repeating: um, showing you know, clients are showing up for sessions; they're showing up on time. Uh, they may be showing up less often, loaded. Um, the uh, officers. Um, are, are, are quote unquote showing up in their own way? Uh, they're invigorated by the model. Um, th- there, there is a it, there, there are fewer sanctions. Uh, in other words, there's uh, less right. less sanctionable behavior and less sanctions, therefore, being uh, doled out. Uh, le- I think le- these le- are important le- intermediate le- outcomes that are worth you know thinking about in terms of connection. Ultimately, you know, with recidivism reduction.
1: Great. Let's use the jail beds. Uh, We've we've really uh, decreased our jail beds as well.
0: I think all of that stuff is so important, um, and it'll be so interesting to see, uh, you know, what the ultimate outcomes are. But I think sometimes we, you know, because we want to achieve um, greater public safety and we do want people individuals to change and officers are now through models like epics and star seeing themselves as quote-unquote change agents um that we tend to jump sometimes a little bit too quickly to you know what are those ultimate outcomes and but first we have to look at our intermediate outcomes and it looks like you're seeing some very positive trends and so you know keith you you talked earlier um, when you were describing how the training has impacted your thinking and, and your practice. You talked about, for example, the culture of safety um, that you create uh, as an officer. Um, and, and, and Kate sort of has, has uh, talked about mindfulness here. And, you know, what are some of the other things, Keith, that you have engaged in as an officer in terms of your practice, you know, to try to improve the behavior of clients, to improve the work that you're doing with clients, to achieve what I think is referred to in the core correctional practices literature as a therapeutic alliance, right? Um, what, what are some of those things?
2: Um, yeah, well, you know, one of the other uh, approach items is, uh, you know, uh, you create a culture of empowerment. You know, just go back to uh, what Kate uh, just specified in terms of slowing the session down so we know from the research uh, that uh, establishing rapport and having a uh, working relationship with your client is uh, very indicative a very good uh, indicative of the client being more successful so you know when you slow things down and you take your time to extend beyond uh, just focusing on the conditions okay you're here today and and I'm just checking on. Did you go to your community service? Is your is your UA going to be hot? You know, uh, uh, we're going beyond that. I'm, I'm actually okay. How's your mother? Um, okay, how's your kid? Or uh, what else is going on with you? Um, and we're also focusing on, um, you know, in, in, empowering the client. What do you want to achieve today? Which is a, a primary question we always ask them. Now, I mean, we again, we are the facilitators. Of the process, you know, in, in terms of guiding them towards again meeting their, uh, you know, goals and expectations, but we, we're kinda them, uh, you know, uh, kind of letting them, you su- know, kind of somewhat, so to speak, uh, be the be the driver of the bus. We just act we act as the GPS, so to speak, uh, and then that's a big deal. I mean, the uh, you know, fact is the success at the end of the day. I mean, it, it benefits the entire society, but it's actually theirs. And, and that's ultimately what we all want to see. Um, so uh, that that's empowering them again. And, and Dr. Moreland also pointed out, uh, you know, you know, we routinely have to uh, turn in videos, and you know, I'm talking about the POs uh, who are part of the Smart Grant, and they and they're assessed, and it's it's a thorough assessment in regards to you know, missed opportunities, perhaps being addressed. Or you know just um, yeah, having to uh, figure out ways that we can go about doing things better, so that, that that empowers us too. And you know it's very good coming from a subject matter expert who is so enthused about what she does. So and and that's a big deal. again it, it's routine. It's not something that you do as in the case of going to. A workshop and it's a one-time thing and you feel good and uh, you know you, you might forget about skill no we've been routinely coached up uh, in terms of being able to deliver a high-quality service to our clientele uh, so that's good we, we haven't we have just been left to the wayside to let's see what you can do with this uh, so we've been coached up in that regard that's very beneficial
0: so, in terms of um, you know, one of the things when when you and when Kate refer to slowing down the session, it's really about building that relationship with the client um, and, and focusing on needs. Both you know, needs indicated or dynamic risk factors, criminogenic needs indicated by your risk assessment, but also just sort of on on their basic human needs. Um, and, and I think that's Wait, Mark, that's got to be Mark, key. Can I
1: add to that, sure, what is that well and again this is what dr morlin pointed out uh and it was so obvious after she did it in the videos but what she saw when we were slowing down is that re- really we were seeking for understanding so we weren't just taking up the person was saying yeah, i get it but giving us examples um you know talking to them at length about you know different problem solving things i mean really making sure that they understood uh, what What we were asking, and that you know they had a, they had an avenue uh, that they could follow
0: well, Kate Desmond and Keith Murphy, thank you so much for talking with us this afternoon
1: well, thank you mark we 've really enjoyed it we 're glad that you asked.
0: My guests have been Dr. Alicia Morland Kapuya of Oregon Health and Science University and Kate Desmond and Keith Murphy of the Multnomah County, Oregon, Department of Community Justice. They work closely together on the department's Smart Supervision Project. It's an innovative and fascinating program designed to reinforce and improve evidence-based community supervision through an understanding of neuroscience, cultural competence, and trauma-informed care. Off Paper is produced by Paul Van Vess. The program is directed by Craig Bowden. I'm Mark Sherman. Thanks for listening. See you next time.